Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast brought to you by our great friends at MyBookie. Yes, the regular season may be over. Yes, the college playoff may be set. But what that means is that bowl season is just around the corner. Just about a week and a half from now, we will have actual bowl games to watch So there is still plenty of time for you guys to bet on college football and win this season with MyBookie. So if you haven't already, jump in today. Sign up for a brand new account at MyBookie.ag. Use our promo code UGA when you do so, and you'll get a 50% bonus on your first deposit. So jump in on it while you still can, guys. The college football season is, is almost gone, but you still have time if you jump in on it today. But all right, guys, I am your host, Tyler. And yes, we made it through the first episode. We did the hardest part. We made it through the recap episode. Like a lot of you guys, I'm uh, still not over it, still struggling, but gotta keep moving, gotta keep going. So we are back today with our mailbag edition of the Glory UGA podcast, our post-SEC Championship mailbag edition of the show. And of course, as is always the case, you guys brought the heat today. Unfortunately, I do have a shot clock on today's episode, I guess, pun intended, because I actually have to get to the Georgia-Georgia Tech basketball game here. I leave here in about 40-ish minutes to get there on time. Yes, I'm extraordinarily sad. The college football season is almost reaching its end, but I'm a huge college basketball guy, so there's at least a little bit of excitement there. So I will try to get through as many questions I possibly can in the shorter amount of time that I have today. I apologize for it not being the typical length show, but I will be back later this week. We'll have one more episode to make up for, guys. So make sure to check back for that. But let's go ahead, guys. Let's get into this since we have a shorter amount of time. And let's start off the top here with our question of the week, which comes from Peter. And Peter very simply asks, what was the biggest reason why Georgia did not repeat in 2023? Great question. This is probably something a lot of you have been asking yourselves and wondering, maybe aloud, maybe quietly, but I'm sure it's been on your mind and it's been on my mind for a while now. I don't think it's really any mystery. This is something, in my opinion, that we have talked about a lot on this show throughout the entirety of the 2023 college football season. In my very humble opinion, it's pretty clear that the biggest reason that we were not as strong of a football team this year, still extraordinarily good, still potentially the best team in the country, certainly one of them, in my opinion, certainly one of the best four, but that's neither here nor there. We've already talked about that. But The biggest reason for me is the defensive line, the interior defensive line in particular. 
We just simply were not as good there. There was a fairly significant decline in production at those positions. Where we're talking about zero tech nose guard, where they're talking three tech, even five tech. I don't think that we were as good there this year. But really, it was it was the interior spots. It was the zero tech and the three tech. It's really weird with Nas Stackhouse because this guy was not Jordan Davis for us last year, but I thought one of the more underrated players, not just on our team last year, but the entire SEC. I didn't think he got enough love. I was actually really excited that he was a preseason all-SEC first-team guy because I felt he deserved that love at the end of last year. I don't think that he got it. I think he earned more recognition throughout the offseason. People were like, oh yeah, this guy's pretty good. He was good for us last year. Again, not not Jordan Davis, nowhere close to that, but a more than serviceable replacement because it's hard to replace a guy like Jordan Davis in one year. Those guys do not grow on trees. They do not come around every year. They are rare athletes. So I thought Nas did a great job for us last year in his first four years as our starter. This year, he wasn't the same. I do think he got better about the midway point of the year. I think he started to turn on a little bit. I don't know how to explain it, to be quite honest with you. He's the same guy. I don't know if it was a lack of hunger type deal where he had to fight and scratch and claw for that position all offseason coming into 2022. And so he got that job and he never felt secure. This was his job all year long. So he kept fighting and scratching and clawing and playing his tail off. And then this year, maybe he he felt like it was his spot. And there was, and this be real, guys, there was no one really pushing him there. The, his backup, his top backup was Christian Miller. He's like 300 pounds, man. I'm not even sure he's 300 pounds. And he was playing zero tech, not a very different kind of zero tech guy, but I don't think Nas felt the push from the guys behind him that he did last year. I mean, we brought in Jamal Jarrett as a true freshman who we hope is going to be that guy, but he was not ready this year. I mean, we just didn't see that guy really in any meaningful situation at all, period. Hardly even in garbage time. Because from a conditioning standpoint and a physical standpoint, he just wasn't there. He's big guy, yeah, huge dude, but he's just not ready to compete in the trenches against grown men right now. So Nas kind of had that spot and there's no one pushing him. And I'm not saying that Nas necessarily phoned it in and he was just lack of days going through the motions. I don't think that's the case. He was playing hard for most of the season, but I don't think he was playing necessarily as hard. I don't think that he had that sense of urgency maybe that he had all of 2022. Now, do I know that for a fact? No, that's that's just me and what I see and trying to read in the situation. It's hard otherwise to really explain that because he's the same player in a year older, a year stronger, a year more experienced. You would expect there to be a natural level of improvement in his second year as a starter. We didn't see that. I mean, guys, he was straight up getting pancaked by Alabama. Those double teams, go back and watch it, guys. Go back and watch some of those plays if you can If you can stomach it. I've had a hard time myself. It's been fits and starts for me. I can't watch the whole thing sitting down in one city. I can watch a couple minutes here, a couple minutes there before I have to turn it off. But you can see clearly multiple times in that game against Alabama, yeah, he's getting double teamed and he's getting driven off the ball by the double teams and pancaked. But that's what that position is supposed to do in our defense. You're supposed to be able to eat up those blocks and withstand those double teams so our inside linebackers can run free and be the stars of the defense. That was a major issue for us all year long, especially against teams that had strong offensive lines. We didn't face a ton of them, but the ones that we did, like Alabama, we had some issues. I mean, guys, he was straight up getting dominated by the interior of the Alabama offensive line. I'm talking driven five yards off the ball and driven into the dirt. And then where you can have one of the guys in double team, typically the, the, the tackle, Caden Proctor in a lot of cases, he can get off that block and rub up to the second level and get our linebackers. And now you've got an easy five-yard game minimum because there's no resistance until you get to about the five-yard mark. I do think that we saw a decline in our plate inside linebacker as well. That, that's very clear. So maybe you want to say the middle of our defense 
was the biggest issue, the biggest reason, because we just weren't as productive from a linebacker standpoint, from an interior defensive line standpoint. At inside linebacker, I mean, yes, Miles Munden, who spent a significant portion of the offseason injured. Spring practice, fall camp, barely practiced in fall camp. We didn't think he was going to go the first week or two. He went out there, but only in isolated situations, third down packages, and he starts to work himself back into into rhythm. But I don't think Smile was ever the same guy that he was. And he worked, and he got later season, got injured again. That was very well documented on this show, and I'm sure others as well, but certainly on this show, I do think that he did some good things. Pop is not a bad player, he's a good player, but I think, especially to open the season, some of the, the issues we saw with eye discipline in just not knowing what to do and making those mental mistakes for a guy in his second year as a starter who's a preseason All-American. Let's not forget that, guys. Preseason All-American. In no way, shape, or form at any point this season did Pop Dumas Johnson, not, again, not a terrible player, good player, but at no point did he play anywhere remotely approaching an All-American, a first-team All-American level. No, never. No one, none of those guys did. And C.J. Allen, Played a lot from the get-go and did a lot of really good things. The Ole Miss game, he played fantastic in that football game. But once you get more tape on him and teams see what he's struggling with, they were able to exploit some of those deficiencies in his game. Just not having that experience being exploited with misdirection. And then you got Raylan Wilson who missed the first month or so of the season because he went down early in fall camp with an injury. And that set back his development. I think Raylan Wilson and CJ Allen are going to be studs for us. Maybe as early as next year. Probably as early as next year. But they weren't quite there fully this year. For freshmen, they were good. But we're talking about the standard of guys like N'Kobe Dean and Quay Walker and Chang Tyndall and Roquan Smith. We got nothing approaching that this year from that position. Which, considering the level of talent at that position in terms of athleticism and just raw ability, I do find that somewhat disappointing. Xavier Sori, who was certainly in the rotation early in the season, yeah, he dealt with some personal issues and missed a chunk of the season and was MIA until the SEC Championship game. All of a sudden, we throw him back out there. Why? Because those freshmen were struggling, and we need a guy a little bit more experience in the system to go out there in that game, and we threw him out there. And then the three-tech, you got Zion Logue, who is a good player. Again, like we don't have bad players on defense. We have good players, but this is the University of Georgia we are talking about. We're not supposed to have good players on the defensive line. We're supposed to have elite guys. That's what we've had. That's what drove us. That was the driving force, in my opinion, behind those two national titles. Our ability defensively to defend anybody's run game with even numbers and keep those those linemen off of our inside linebackers, allow them to run free and make play after play after play, and allow us to keep a too high safety shell and limit explosive plays in the passing game from our opponents, that is what drove our success more than anything. And we didn't have that. Again, Zion Lowe, good player. Not an elite player. Not not close. That's not what he is. Warren Brinson, I thought, was probably our best interior guy in terms of his disruptive ability, but he's more of a one-tech guy. He's not going to eat up blocks. And he's not. he wasn't a disruptive force the way that Jalen Carter was, the way that even Devontae Wyatt was. He wasn't that kind of guy. I thought Christian Miller did some good things for us. I'm excited about him in the future, but he was more akin to what Warren Brinson is, a smaller interior guy whose greatest strength is his quickness, his ability to penetrate in the backfield and disrupt the offense. But that's not typically the kind of defensive lineman that we feature because we want guys that two-gap, and those guys aren't really two-gappers. And the result was we gave up about 40 more yards per game against the run, guys. We gave up a full yard per rush more this year than we did a year ago. That's not good enough. That's not good enough. It had been five freaking years since we had allowed a team to run for 200 yards on us in a game. It happened twice this year. Twice. Auburn, guys. Auburn was one of them. A six-win Auburn team and a six-win Georgia Tech team. Now, as we said, when those games happened, they didn't line the ball and run it down our throats, but 
they were still a little bit of, of that in terms of like getting some movement on the offense on the defensive line, but there was it was more misdirection quarterback run stuff. But we faced teams that use misdirection quarterback run stuff against us, and we haven't given up 200 yards. We did it twice this year, and as far as I'm concerned, that was the biggest issue. Now the other thing I would say, number two, would be injuries. And look, I'm not trying to make excuses. Every team deals with a certain number of injuries, but we dealt with significant injuries to some of the most critical players on our team throughout the year. Lad McConkey missed the first month of the season. It took him about halfway through the year, at least maybe the Florida game, right? So a little bit more than halfway through the season to even get remotely close to Lad McConkey that we were used to seeing through his first couple of years here in Athens. And then he starts to get some momentum, has some big games against Missouri, Ole Miss, and then sprains his ankle against Ole Miss, right? And then can't play against Tennessee. What, he had seven snaps in that game. Can't play at all against Georgia Tech. Suited up. Last week in the SEC title game, but that wasn't Lad McConkey, guys. I, I appreciate him so much, man. Uh, he's an absolute warrior. What he did going out there and putting that online for us, a guy could barely move. How many times you see a guy limping off the field? I mean, I, I, it's unbelievable he was even out there giving it a go. And you got Brock Bauer, superhuman man himself, coming back 26 days after ankle surgery and playing. And he had no business doing that. In retrospect, probably shouldn't have let him. I, I mean, how do you say no, I guess, if he gets cleared? But we probably need to save him for the SEC title game. But I, I'll tell you, I got on very good authority, guys. After the game, in the tunnels, Brock could barely walk. Just like Lab. Absolute warrior, man. Gotta love him. Gotta love him. But you can't sit here and say injuries didn't play a factor in that. I mean, you got Marius Mims, our only surefire first-round draft pick on the offensive line, going down in week three against South Carolina and misses, what about, was it seven games? Misses more than half the season. And we were okay. We were still able to get by without him, which is a testament to our depth and, and our coaching staff. But then he goes down after 11 plays in the SEC title game, and that one that one hurt. That, I think that might have been the decisive injury in that game, to be honest with you, as we'll talk about a little bit later. So injury situation, running back. I mean, kind of mashing it running back with offensive line, linebackers, be pop breaking his arm, Rara Thomas. I mean, we're talking about major contributors, some of the best players on our team missing significant chunks of time. And, you know, it's a miracle, honestly. If you think about it, guys, if you really think about it, it's borderline miraculous that we went through this regular season undefeated with all the injuries that we had to deal with and really were only pushed really in one game maybe you can say Missouri kind of pushes but Auburn was the only one score game in the regular season I guess maybe Tech what Tech was an eight point game so I guess Tech but we, we were a mash unit in that game so we go through the regular season and blow out some of the toughest opponents on our schedule with all of those injuries I think that's a testament to our depth, our roster, our coaching staff, the culture, all of those things. It really is. I mean, if you think about it, I know that we're all disappointed that we didn't make the national title game, make the playoff, but it's miraculous that we were even in position to have a shot at the playoff with the injury situation that we dealt with all year long. So I think those would be the two biggest reasons with, again, for me, the interior defensive line, I guess the middle of our defense, you want to throw inside linebackers in there as well, the decline in production we saw there, I think that to me, again, is still the biggest reason why we took a slight step back and ultimately did not end up in the college playoff. Because think about it, guys. We, we did a fairly good job from the most part in stopping the Alabama run game. Now, they, they had some moments where they were biting off some chunk yards, but when we needed to stop at the end of the game, after we pulled within three, we couldn't get it. And all they were doing was running the ball. Yeah, they used a quarterback run game. They got the numbers advantage. But in the past, it doesn't really matter because we're so dominant up front. We eat up double teams. We couldn't get that stop. They just ran the ball at will right down our throat, and they iced the game away. In the past... 2021 certainly doesn't happen in 21. 22, I don't think it happens in 22, but it happened this year. And that sealed the deal for us. 
But all right, guys, so let's go ahead and do our first break here before we move on to the rest of our questions. I just want to quickly remind you again about our great friends at MyBookie. I know we're all kind of in this day of depression. Obviously, we just lost, and we're not going to make the playoff, and our shot at a three-peat, it's gone. It's gone. Maybe we'll start a new quest for a three-peat next year. That's that's the plan, right? But despite the loss, despite the, the way we're all feeling right now, the college football season is not dead. There's still about 30-some college football games left and bowl season coming up here. So there's still plenty of time for you guys to get on the action and make some money. You've watched all these teams. You know who's good. You know who's not good. Now's the time to cash in on that. And all you have to do is go to mybookie.ag and use our promo code UGA to get a 50% bonus on that first deposit for all new users. And you're set, man. they got so many great options for you. they got parlay options. They've got cash out early options. You got a ton of live betting options, cash pools, so many ways for you guys to make some money this holiday season. So jump in on it today and bet anything, anytime, anywhere, only with my bookie. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, guys, next question. Let's go to our question from our good friend, Art. Appreciate it, Art. Always appreciate you, man. Art asks, in your opinion, which side of the ball was more deficient in the SEC championship game, offense or defense? Well, Art, it's a good question, man. I think that they both had their moments of deficiencies. I would put more of that game on the offense, however. And that's somewhat odd because we've talked about it several times this year. I feel like the offense was what carried us through most of the season. Our offense was the better unit. Our defense was still good, but it wasn't an elite defense. Our offense was elite. We had one elite unit this year. It was our offense. Our defense was very, very good. It was not elite. It wasn't the level that we saw in 21 or 22. Our offense was elite all year long. That was what drove us to the undefeated regular season, in my opinion. Third straight undefeated regular season, mind you. But in this game... For a variety of reasons, as we're going to get to, I have a couple other questions about this. It was the offense that let us down. It was the lowest output of total yards in the season, 321. I mean, defensively, I know we had a lot of people you know, hit us up during the game and say, man, they're, they're just running the ball all over us. They're whipping us right now. I mean, guys, we held them to 306 total yards of offense. I mean, that's that's a. I mean, I know Alabama's offense hasn't been a vintage Alabama offense this year, but holding a team that talented to 306 yards, you should probably win that football game, right? Probably should. But we didn't. And it's, honestly, if you would have told me coming into that game that we would hold Alabama to 306 total yards, I would have told you, oh yeah, we're winning that football game. Like there have been no doubt in my mind. No doubt in my mind. But it didn't work out that way. We only put up 321 yards of offense ourselves. And that is somewhat shocking to me. I know Alabama's defense is good. It ain't that good, guys. If we play Georgia football, we play the way that we know we can play. Now, with a fully decked roster, right, with all the guys healthy, which we certainly did not have, I mean, 
we win this football game. I, I believe that. I think even without, even with the injuries, though, we still could have won and I think should have won. Still think we were the better team. Obviously, it didn't work out that way. Margins were tight. Margins were close. They made more plays when they needed to, and we made mistakes, and they did. So tip of the cap, they won the football game. But the offense was, to me, the, the bigger issue in this game. And I don't want to get too deep into this question because we do have some more questions here later on that we'll get more into that. But I think it's pretty clear, you know, when you hold a team to 306 yards of offense in an SEC championship game, you should win that football game. Again, if you would have told me Friday night, hey, man, you're going to hold Alabama to 306 yards tomorrow, I'd be like, oh, hell yeah, let's go. National title, three-peats on, baby. Didn't work out that way. Why? Because the offense did not do what the offense has done all year long. And speaking of the offense, let's just go ahead and get to it. Let's get to those questions. We have two that, I th- they're not the exact same question, but they're getting at the same point, I believe. So we've got questions from Calvin and Kevin. I'm going to read them together. So Calvin says, I'm disappointed. Yes, Calvin, I'm with you, buddy. Why did we wait to let Carson sling it in this game? I feel like Kirby was scared. And Kevin asks, do you think the injuries to Brock, Ladd, and Mims were the reason for the conservative play calling? So I think they're both getting at the same thing. And when I was going to answer Calvin's question, I was going to basically answer Kevin's question. So let's just do them together here. Calvin, I, I don't know if it's like, I, I guess, I don't, is scared the right word? I don't know. I think Kirby had concerns. And this is why I'm bringing Kevin's question into play here. To me, it's when Mims went down. 11 plays. Let's think about this, guys. Think about that first drive. Think about that first drive and how we went about scripting that drive and how we attacked Alabama and then what we did the rest of the game until about midway through the second half when we was like, all right, we just got to start throwing the football because we got to come back and win this football game. Why did, we, why did we shift what we were doing offensively from the first drive, which was so successful, by the way, scored a touchdown on it, right? 7 nothing. which, hey, man, hey, we score first. Let's go. We're going to win this game, right? Feeling good. What happened? What changed? Why did we switch up the way we were attacking them? Why did we start running the football with such consistency on the early downs and not putting the ball in Carson Beck's hands? This guy that has been awesome for us, an elite quarterback for us all year long. He's answered the bell time and time again whenever we needed him. I believe it was the injury to Amarius Mims. I think that's what explains it. He goes down and he is, again, your only surefire first round draft pick on the offensive line. What did we talk about in the preview show coming to the game last week? What does Alabama do best? What was the one thing where it wasn't a clear edge for Georgia? One, like one of the two things, I guess. It was the Alabama pass rush versus our pass pro, protecting Carson. They were elite rushing the passer. We were elite protecting the passer. We are not as elite protecting the passer against a pass rush like that, speed rushers like that with Dallas Turner and Chris Braswell without a Marius Mims in the game. When you got to put Xavier Truss out there, Truss is a serviceable guy against most teams not against those caliber pass rushers, not against the way that they rush a passer with their athleticism and their speed off the edge. He was going to get roasted. So what did Kirby and Mike Bobo decide to do? And it's hard to know. Was it Kirby giving Bobo a directive? Was it just Bobo saying, this is what we got to do? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. But one way or another, whoever's responsible for it, we decided we have to stay out of third and long because we do not trust Xavier Trust in those situations. And we, on the other side, you got Ernest Green, who's gotten better and grown up as the season's gone on, but he's still not quite there yet, not against pass rushers like that. He struggled at times against guys like that throughout the year. So, we're, all right, what are we going to do? got to stay out of third and long. How do you do that? You run the football. We thought we could run the football on this team, and we had success doing it on the first drive. So I see why, okay, yeah, we can keep doing this all game long. But it wasn't working because they changed up, you know, very clearly changed up what they were doing. Saban's made some some comments about that. They did. They they went from a bare front and went to more of an odd front, and they played with too high safety shell, and they said, all right, we're going to see if we can stop the run game with even numbers. And, when, and with, again, without Mims in there, 
They had some success doing that. Now, we ran the ball decently in, in, at spurts and in, in certain situations, but we didn't run it well enough. We simply did not. We averaged about three and a half yards per carry from our running backs. And so despite our best efforts to stay out of third long by running the football and kind of staying ahead of the chains, we weren't actually staying out of third and long. It was keeping us in third and long. So I was saying all game long, we've got to throw the ball more on first down. That's what we need to do because regardless, if you try to run the football, I know what you're trying to do, but we're, we're still in third and long because we can't run the football. So throw it on early downs. You know what? We started to do that about midway through the second half. Oh, and what happened? Yeah, we mounted a comeback. We started having some success throwing the football. Funny how that works. We just did it way too late. But I truly believe you can trace that back to the Marius Mims injury. And you can sit here and disagree with me. That's totally fine. We can have disagreements. That, that can be a healthy thing. But it's just, it, it defies logic to me. If you look at what we did that first drive to score that opening touchdown, go up 7 nothing, and how we did nothing close to that the rest of the first half into the second half, what was what changed? What was the difference? Well, there's no Marius Mims. And I think along with that, you factor in that our two best skill players and Brock Bowers and Lab McConkie are playing, but it's not Brock Bowers, Lat McConkie out there, guys. And they're not the same guys. Not the same guys. They're playing hurt, man. And so it's like, okay, well, these guys, you know, they're not 100%, not really close to it. We know that. We got the we got the situation at right tackle against their pass rushers. So let's just see if we can run the football on this team. And I and I I thought we could have more success running the football. That was one of the things that surprised me in this game. Because I don't think I still don't think Alabama's very good. They're good. They're good. They're not elite. They're not vintage Bama on the interior of the defensive line. Like same thing for us. And at a linebacker, same thing. I think they have some of the similar issues that we had. But they were able to slow down our run game enough because we weren't posing enough a threat with the passing game. And that's ultimately for me what it came down to. Now you can you can say that's Kirby being scared. Maybe. I mean, I, I wouldn't push back too much on that. I think it's just Kirby realizing that we had some issues that we had to try to protect against. And so I do think that we went conservative based on our injury situation. And we waited too long to adjust. We did. We, I think Kirby thought, all right, you know, we can still win this whole game. Our defense is playing fairly well. And we can outlast this team. We can make more plays when it matters late in the game. And it didn't work out that way. It didn't work out that way, unfortunately. All right, next up, let's actually go to a question about the defense. So this comes from Nathan. Nathan asks, why did we only play Jalen Walker 12 snaps, and can we please move him full-time to outside linebacker? He's the best option we have out there. Also, I hate that on third and short, not once but twice. We ran outside runs instead of just getting north and south. On third and short, run north and south. Please don't go east-west. On the offensive side, yes, I totally agree with that. The east-west stuff on third and short drives me insane. I'm not saying it never works, but it's far more proficient to run the ball north and south. Totally agree, because then you get ahead of steam, you can fall forward. It's hard to fall forward when you're running east and west, especially when you got a big guy like Kendall Milton. So I totally agree on that front. But defensively, yeah, we talked about this a little bit on the recap episode. I will reiterate it, though, because it bears reiteration. Jalen Walker is a freaking stud. Jalen Walker is by far the most disruptive player we have on our defense. And I think it's borderline criminal that he only played 12 snaps in that game because the dude had about a 30% win rate, dude. 30%. He had seven pressures on 12 snaps. Pardon my language, but who in the hell else out there on our defense, especially edge rushers, is giving us anything remotely approaching that? Not a freaking soul, man. I love Kirby. I love our staff. I think we're the best coaching staff in America, but no one's perfect. And I think they have somewhat mismanaged Jalen Walker in his first two years here in Athens. It's very clear his skill set, his best attribute is his pass rushing ability. He has natural 
pass rush abilities, quick twitch, his ability to use his hands. I mean, that's, you can teach him to use their hands, but some people just do it naturally well. He does it naturally well. His ability to bend on the edges, it's tough to teach that. You can help people get better at it. It's tough to have that to teach that natural ability. He's got it, man. He is a natural edge rusher. We recruited him, however, as an inside linebacker. And I think he could be a really good inside linebacker as well. And so I, I understand, like, it's like, all right, well, he's kind of a tweener. He's not quite big enough to play outside linebacker on a down-by-down basis in our coaches' minds because he doesn't have the size to maybe hold up against the run as well as some of the other guys at that position do. But at the same time, it's really hard to just make him a full-time inside linebacker because he does have those pass rush goes. And look, our inside linebackers rush the passer, but not all that often from the edge. He is a natural edge rusher and more or less an inside linebacker's body. So I get that he's kind of a tweener. However, I do think he got bigger as the season went on. And here's the thing. If you're saying that he can't play on the edge consistently at Jack because you think there's some run game deficiencies, some run defense deficiencies, okay. Well, tell me, the other guys playing that position that you have in there to play the run, are they really playing the run that much better than Jalen Walker would have? I mean, Chaz Chambers plays his heart out, man. Love the guy for it. He's he's a really good piece. But, I mean, Chaz isn't a dominant run defender. Marvin Jones Jr. is a good player, but he's a young guy too. He's still learning how to play that position. He wasn't a dominant run defender. So why is Jalen Walker only seeing the field in our dime package? I think that is a gross mismanagement of our personnel because Jalen Walker is one of our two to three most gifted defensive players. I, I will absolutely say that. I think Malachi Starks is right there, maybe number one. Jalen Walker's right there, man. Smile's a good athlete. I think Jalen Walker might be a better athlete than Smile, guys. I'm not kidding, man. That twitch, that explosiveness, that ability to bend, not many guys got that. Dude's a freak. And he put it on display against the best team that we played all year. So yes, David, I'm totally with you. I think he could be a really good inside linebacker. And I'm an old school inside linebacker guy myself. So you know, him coming in to, to UGA, I was saying, like, this guy's going to be a, our next great inside linebacker. I think he could be that. But I also think he's far too valuable to put inside linebacker in terms of his ability to rush the edge because those guys are harder to find. You can We have so many good inside linebackers. We have guys with a ton of talent. Raylan Wilson, we'll see what happens with Xavier and Sori, CJ Allen. I really like, I think Bowles is going to be a good player. The guys we got coming in this year are going to be awesome. We're loaded inside linebacker. We'll see what Pop does. We'll see what Smile does. They might come back. Who knows? We're loaded there. He's going to be stuck behind all those guys. He's going to be stuck in that crowd. Put him on the freaking edge at Jack. Help him gain weight. Put him on a nutrition plan in the offseason. He dealt with a labrum surgery last year, so he couldn't really lift weights. I like Marvin Jones Jr., so that certainly set him back a little bit. But put the guy at Jack. That's what he needs to play. He needs to be our full-time. He needs to be our starter at Jack next year. As far as I'm concerned, that dude needs to start. And I know we've got some good players like Damon Wilson. I think in Pimba, I think Gabe Harris. Those guys are all good players, and they can find roles as well. But Jalen Walker is an absolute force. He was borderline unstoppable at times. He's got to be on the field more than just in dime packages. He's got to be. And hopefully now, he's, fingers crossed, able to go through spring practice. I think that was part of the issue. I will defend the coaches in that. Part of the issue was it's hard to teach in that outside linebacker position because he basically played inside linebacker in high school. It's hard to teach in that jack spot if he can't practice through all the spring in a lot of fall camp because of the shoulder injury. All right? That, that does make it tough. That stunts your development. But hopefully that should not be a problem this year, and I'm hopeful that we see him make that full-time move and we can get him on the field more than 12 freaking snaps in the most important game of the season. Okay, a couple more questions that come out of the SEC Championship game, and then we'll get to some other questions that aren't necessarily directly related to the SEC Championship game. 
But we got a couple of questions here about the officiating. And I know, I know everyone says, oh, you're just making excuses. Hey, man, it is what it is. Y'all saw it. Y'all saw it. You can't bury your head in the sand. So D.A. Cooper asks, I hate to be that guy, but why do the refs always seem to be our biggest hurdle in this game? Yeah, D.A. Cooper, great question. I don't know if I have a definitive answer. I don't have a definitive answer. I have ideas. I have thoughts. But I'm also kind of at a loss. And we did touch on this some, certainly, on the recap episode. But here's what I, I can say. What I am comfortable saying is that it's far too consistent of an occurrence. Referees making calls or making non-calls, not making calls, that favor Alabama in the biggest moments in the biggest games. It happens far too often and far too consistently in their favor for it to be purely coincidental. I do not believe it's coincidental. Now, saying that, I also don't believe the quote-unquote fixes in. I don't think this is part of some larger conspiracy to prop Alabama up like a conscious conspiracy. I do, however, think it's an unconscious bias. I think that the referees in the SEC are just so accustomed to Alabama being the dominant team, as they were for so long, right, that they tend to look at plays, look at potential penalties in a way that favors Alabama because they expect Alabama to be the dominant team. They expect Alabama to be the team that wins, the team that doesn't commit those penalties. They expect the other team to be committing those penalties against Alabama because Alabama is so dominant. And I I don't know if that is it, but it's how I try to make sense of this. I do think it's an unconscious bias of sorts that favors Alabama because, again, it's far too consistent. If it happened once or twice, okay, fine. Could it be a coincidence? Sure, things happen. These are humans that make these calls or don't make these calls. It's certainly possible. But when it happens just so consistently, in the biggest moments, on the biggest stages, there has to be something more to this. Because other teams in the league do not get that quantity of game-altering calls that so often go in their favor. It just doesn't happen. I'm not saying other teams don't get calls that go their way. Yes, they do. Everyone does every now and then. But not the sheer volume of game-changing calls that propel Alabama into, I don't know, college playoffs into, oh, I don't know, national championships like 2017. It's truly wild, man. It is it is borderline inexplicable, but the way I try to explain it, the only way I can explain it right now is an unconscious bias source based on Alabama's dominance over a prolonged period of time. Now, following up on that, all CFB has another question, maybe a more important question, because we can complain about all we want. What I want is action. I want something done about it. I want this to stop. So all CFB asks, what can be done to improve officiating in big games that matter? This is another question that I think is important. I know is important, but I don't have a definitive answer. I don't know how you address this. I did, and I talked about this a little bit on the recap episode, but I'll go into a little bit more detail here. It's really hard to punish officials. I know we all want that. I, I want public accountability. Like I want these guys like publicly shamed. I want them to be publicly fired if if it comes to that, if it's, if it's warranted. And the reason I want that, it's not just to like satiate the masses and to give us some sense of satisfaction. I want to know that there is accountability. As far as we know, nothing ever happens to these guys. They keep trotting out there. I firmly believe there needs to be more transparency. And this goes for the NFL as well. I mean, I'm not an NFL guy, but I watch enough and you guys probably watch enough to know that it has been a major problem all season long in the NFL. I mean, most recently, the Packers and Chiefs game, just like, what is going on there and it went against the Chiefs which is crazy usually teams like that get the benefit of the calls like Alabama does but they did not in that game so it's a problem at all levels of football but the reason it becomes really hard to offer more transparency and more public accountability is because 
the simple reality that not many people want those jobs because they, they don't get paid a ton. And in the case of college refs, they are not full-time employees, right? They have other jobs. This is something they'd kind of do on the side. I firmly believe that leagues around the country, including the SEC, do not want to risk alienating these officials to the point they don't want to do the job anymore, where it gets to the point where they're like, you know what, it's the juice isn't worth the squeeze. It's not worth all the, the hate I get. It's already not worth the hate I get from the from the fans, but now the league is like publicly shaming me and holding me accountable. I'm just going to quit. I don't need this. I have another job. And then what do you do if you have no officials? So I think that's the crux of the issue. My solution to this, and I don't know how feasible it is. I mean, there's a lot of money flowing around in college ball these days. I do know that. I believe they need to be made full-time employees. I think this needs to be like a full-time job like it is for, essentially like it is for the NFL as far as I understand it. Now, a big part of why that's difficult is like, who is in charge of that? Is that a league by league thing? Because then it's league by league. You still have some issues with different. The reality is like you saw against Georgia Tech guys, ACC officials call games differently than, S- than SEC officials. I wish the NCAA would take over the officiating across the country, but then I also don't really trust the NCAA and they already have so many issues of their own. I mean, they're getting sued all over the place for all manner of issues right now. I don't think they have the bandwidth or the manpower to be able to take that on. So I guess it would fall to the leagues. And my solution is make them full-time employees. And if you don't want to make them full-time employees, pay them more. And then if you pay them more, you can hold them more accountable. Because if you pay them more, you make it a more attractive job, right? And then more people would want to do it. So there's a a larger pool of potential applicants and candidates to choose from. Therefore, maybe you're more comfortable with public accountability and with more transparency. Because if these guys don't like it and they don't like how they're held accountable, they don't like the public transparency, there's a whole group of other guys sitting behind them and waiting waiting to take their jobs. Right now, I don't know if there's a, a group of other guys waiting to take their jobs. There's just no competition. And, you know, we talk about it a lot from a football standpoint. Competition breeds excellence, right? Because you have to keep up your game. You have to play with a sense of urgency. Because if not, the other dude's going to take your job. I don't think referees approach their job with that same sense of urgency. I'm sure they take pride in it to a degree, but it's like, again, it's it's not their full-time job. It's something they do on the side. They can probably live without it. And there's no one breathing down their neck to take their job. So how do you change that? I think you have to try to make the position more attractive. How do you do that? Well, money is a big motivating factor, right? So find some way to pay them more money. Now, does that eat into the revenue that, that the schools take? Yeah, it does. So I don't know how much willingness and motivation there will be to do that among the institutions themselves inside the conference. I don't know. But if you want to change it, that's what you got to do. I think you have to make that job more attractive. I think the way to make it more attractive is to offer more money, maybe more benefits. And then once you do that, you have a greater pool of applicants, a greater pool of candidates. And I think you can maybe go with a greater sense of transparency and actually have these guys, I don't know, answer questions after games, the way the coaches have to, the way the players have to. I mean, Carson Beck and Kirby Smart had to sit up there and answer questions after that SEC championship loss. And, you know, they sure as hell didn't want to do that. Well, I know refs don't answer questions, but they need to, just like players, just like coaches do. But it's like everything else in college football. It's an unwieldy sport and there's no perfect answer. But here's one last thing I'll say on this. There might not be a perfect answer, but I know there's a better answer than what we have right now. Just like the college football playoff right now with the committee, I'm not saying there's a perfect answer. I think that's elusive. I do not think there is a perfect answer. You can't create a situation where there's no controversy. But I know there's a better way to do it than how we're doing it right now. And that's kind of how I feel about officiating. But all right, guys, before we move on to our last set of questions, I do want to take one more quick break and remind you about our great friends at 
alumni. Oh, guys, they've got so many great options out there for you right now in-store and online. Of course, you can shop in-store here inside the Epsom Shopping Center here in the Classic City. You can also find all the same great stuff online. They've got a ton of cold weather gear, guys. They've had it in stores for weeks, getting more stuff by the day. They've got hoodies. They've got full zips, Q-zips. They've got jackets. they still got the, you know, the warm weather stuff. They've got the polos, the t-shirts, all that. They've got crew necks. They've got beanies. they got everything you want to bundle up for the winter. And with the holidays just around the corner, there's no better place to get the gifts for all the Georgia fans in your life. I know you got them. There's no better place than Alumni Hall because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldogs shop. All right, guys, we've got a couple more questions. i got to run through these pretty quickly because I do have to get out of here and head to the Steg for the Georgia-Georgia Tech basketball game. I'm excited about that one, man. I'm trying to, I mean, obviously, we're all... We're all still feeling it. We're all going through it here with this loss in the SEC title game. But maybe a win over Tech. It's not going to solve everything. But it'll 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 perk me up for at least a couple of hours. So hopefully that is something our guys can actually deliver tonight. But right now, we do have a couple more questions to get through. So let's run through them. And let's see what we got here. Let's go to a question from Chris. Appreciate it. But I think it's the second time we got a question from Chris. So thanks, man. Appreciate you. And Chris asks, are the non-playoff bowl games going to be pointless in the 12-team era? Yeah, good question. I, I I think they'll be more pointless than they are now. I mean, the reality is right now, guys, if you're not in the college football playoff, the games are, we know, I mean, they're glorified exhibitions. It's college football, so I watch them. Uh, I hope you guys watch them too, at least if you if you want to. I mean, we only have college football for so long, and then after, after January, what, 8th this year, we won't have it for nine months. So I will watch literally every single bowl game but I also watch them knowing that I don't really mean anything especially now with all the opt-outs and the transfers I mean it's it's wild man like you don't need like the, the teams are like shells of themselves it's really, actually it's fun to bet on bowl games my bookie right but it's hard because it's like who's playing man and like all these guys you don't, don't really know much about because you don't really see them play so it, it makes it fun it also makes it a really difficult process but I think right even right now with the four-team playoff, those games are, I mean, sure, they're fun to watch, and there's there's some interesting matchups, some intriguing matchups, but I mean, how many star players are going to be sitting out those intriguing matchups, are not going to be involved, where they transferred out or declared for the NFL draft, so they're opting out, how many guys aren't going to be playing, I mean, Ohio State's not going to have Kyle McCord, I don't know how much of a loss that is, but the dude's not even going to be suiting up when they play Missouri in the Cotton Bowl, it's like, okay, yeah, I mean, you'd probably pick Ohio State over Missouri, any normal week, but like right now, I don't know, but it's it's still football, it's college football, we love it, so we watch it, but it doesn't mean anything, like, I'm gonna be honest with you guys, like, I know it's one more chance to watch Georgia play, but I'm having a really hard time getting all that up for the Florida State game in the Orange Bowl, like, I mean, yeah, it would be a cool matchup if it was in the playoff, if both teams had all their guys playing, but that's not gonna be the case, and the reality is, after two years of playing in the college football playoffs and winning back-to-back national titles it's it's I'm a, I mean I know it sounds spoiled and it I guess it is entitled I guess it is but it's just how I feel like what is the what who what does the Orange Bowl mean it, yeah it's I wanted to win because I want I, I always want Georgia to win and if we lose I will I will not be happy obviously but but there's no ends to the means right like the regular season's a means to an end to get to the college playoffs. You can play for national title. Well, that's out of the question for us now, I, I think erroneously, but it is. So yeah, I think if, if it's already that way with a 14 playoff, with a 12 team playoff, yeah, those bowl games are going to become more meaningless. But I will say this, the New Year's Six is going to be part of the college playoff. 
starting next year. So we're going to have more. Those are technically bowl games. So, but they're, yeah, they're playoff games, but they're bowl games. So those will be much more fascinating. Those games themselves, right? And with those 12 teams, those will be fantastic. But everything outside the New Year's Six, I mean, it'll be probably the same that it is this year. I mean, how much do you care about the Citrus Bowl? How much do you care about the Vegas Bowl? How much do you care about the LA Bowl? How much do you care about the Pinstripe Bowl? How much do you care about the Birmingham Bowl? How much do you care about the new Pop-Tarts Bowl? Not that much, right? Like the fans go because it's kind of fun and it's, you know, usually they're, they're cool locations and it's kind of a little bit of a vacation and yeah, you want to win because you want your team to win. But also if you lose, it's like, you know, who cares? Whatever. It's kind of an exhibition game. So I think that'll probably be largely the same for those games. I do think for, you know, the Cotton Bowl, the Peach Bowl, the Fiesta Bowl, all those bowls now will be part of the playoffs. There's no New Year's Six. There's no rotation. Like, will there be a rotation like which one of the semifinal bowls you know, every year they will rotate between that, but they'll all either be a first round bowl, quarterfinal bowl, or a semifinal bowl every year. There'll be a playoff game. So those games will be more fun, but the other ones will kind of be about what they have been. Okay, next up, we got a question from James. This is this is one that should put a smile on our face. I like this question, James. I, I like the positive vibes here. So James is focusing on the 29-game win streak and not the most recent loss. So James asked, what was your favorite moment during the 29-game win streak? It'd be really hard for me to say anything other than the national championship game in Indianapolis. I mean, that was literally something I had been waiting on my entire life, like dreaming of, wanting so desperately, like all of you, my entire life, guys. Like Every single year when there was the national championship game, the BCS era, or the playoffs in, in the playoff era, and we weren't in it, God, I would just sit there and watch those games. I'm, I'll be honest, I was jealous, man. I wanted that so badly. I wanted so badly to be a part of that, to have a national title. I dreamed about it, guys. 1980, I wasn't alive. I was born in 1985. I wasn't alive. Literally my entire life, I've dreamed of it. It's been a a deep abiding passion of mine. I've wanted it so badly. So to get it in that moment in the way that we did, getting revenge on Alabama, kind of getting that monkey off of our back and the big moments late in that game, I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable, man. I, I truly don't have the words to describe it. I, I I don't. It was truly a dream come true for me to be in that stadium to watch our dogs pull that off. I have never felt that way before or after that game. Even last year, guys. Even last year, as great as when the national title was, and that was another amazing feeling. I mean, you just don't get that anywhere else. You don't like that that specific feeling. You just don't get that anywhere else. I'm not saying it's the best feeling in the world, you know, it's not the same as like the way you love your wife or something like that, but it's a different feeling and you don't get that intensity and that passion, those butterflies that go along with it. You just, you don't get it anywhere else. And that was the height of that for me. So I've got to say it was being in the stadium there in Indianapolis, freezing cold out there. Actually, I love, I, I love Indianapolis. I think that, I think the college football playoff, I think the national championship game should be, I think it should rotate between Indianapolis and New Orleans because of, I, you guys know I, mean, I travel all these games I've been all over the place these big playoff games whatever those two places New Orleans and Indianapolis are built for events Miami nice nice weather beaches cool awesome New Year's fun it's a fun place to go but it's not built for events man I mean I have a lot of hotels but like that stadium in the middle of freaking nowhere no not built for events uh, Pasadena the Rose Bowl horrific at, the game was incredible the way it played out. I mean, unbelievable to be there, but everything else around the game, the experience itself going out there, 
And I know it sounds spoiled, but I mean, like, I'm just being real. Like, it's, I hated it. I hate it. I, LA sucks. I do not like LA. And then hopping on a train to go to Pasadena where there's nothing going on. Then once you get off the train, you got to walk like two miles down in the middle of nowhere through like this residential area to get to the Rose Bowl. And it's like, oh, cool. The, the mountains and the sunset. I do not freaking care. I want convenience and I want a place that's built for that. That's going to make the experience fun for me. Like being in the stadium was cool. The way we won that game. Yeah, cool. History, all that stuff. But, you know, that wears off real quick. No, I don't, I don't like the Rose Bowl. We haven't been to the Cotton Bowl, but I know that stadium, in Arling- it's in Arlington. It's out in the suburbs. It's not really near anything. There's parking lots around. There's nothing really around to do. It's not built for events. Atlanta, I mean, I know that's obviously really convenient for Georgia fans. And Atlanta's not the worst, but it's not really built for that. There's, not- and there's nothing around Mercedes-Benz. I mean, there's not. And I know Indianapolis is far away and it's cold that time of year, obviously. But it was awesome, man. The way that was laid out, it was built for that. And New Orleans, I mean, it's just what that city is, man. It's an event city and it's fun. It's got great food and you can, it's walkable, which is key for me. But anyway, I'm getting off track here. The the game in Indianapolis, National Championship, has got to be my favorite moment. I'll, I'll throw a couple other like honorable mentions out here. The home game being Tennessee last year with the way that they talked junk, so much trash leading up to that game, and they were just convinced they're going to be. It's really the entire country was like, there's no chance Georgia can win this game. And it's like, okay, cool. They were number one, man. They were feeling themselves so freaking much coming to that game. And the way we just jumped out from the get-go and took their soul and they had no chance, that was one of the most fun games I have experienced inside Sanford Stadium. And I've experienced a lot of them. Probably the most fun I've had inside Sanford Stadium. Just Unbelievable, man. Just so much fun. Love that game. When the Peach Bowl last year was pretty awesome, the way that game went down. I mean, that was just an unbelievable football game and the feeling. I mean, I ripped my shirt off. I wouldn't rip it off. I took it off because I, 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 that, I'm embarrassed by that, kind of. Like, I just know what else. I just, it was like instinct. I didn't know what to do. Like, I just I was like, oh, just freaking out the way it went down. And yeah, man, that was that was crazy. That was fun. So the couple other ones were awesome, but I mean, you can't beat the national title, baby. That first one, that's just. You know, I've never, again, I've never had a feeling before or after that. I don't know if I ever will again. Like that first one I've experienced, it's just, uh, it was different, man. All right, a couple questions here about transfers and opt-outs. So Jonathan asks, how different will our roster look after the Orange Bowl? Who do you think will opt out? You guys have, at this point, you've already seen a lot of the guys who have hit the transfer portal. So far, no one like massive outside of maybe Brock Vandegrift, which is, you know, kind of expected there. I mean, Jared Zirkel will hit the portal. He's going to, he's about to hit the portal, by the way. I don't, by the time you're listening to this, I guess he will have officially hit the portal, but I'm just saying it now, I know he's going to. So he's going to hit the portal. Um, and there's a couple other names out there who might. Uh, we're still waiting to see officially. Some guys are thinking about it, talking to the coaches. We'll see. We might not be done. We might be done. We'll see. But opt-outs, that's the one to keep my eye on. I'm starting to lean more and more towards Carson Beck coming back. Don't take that as gospel truth, guys. I don't know that for sure. What I understand, it's looking more likely than not right now that he will come back. I'm, I'm, cautiously optimistic there. So I hope we have him. Um, that would be awesome because that means we'll have him for another year and let's freaking go, baby. Um, Brock and Ladd, I don't think they're going to play. I don't have that on like 100% authority because I don't know if it's like fully known yet, but I don't think they'll play. So I think they probably will opt out. And I'm okay with that, guys. And these guys need to get healthy. I mean, I love them, man. They've done everything they possibly could for this program. Love them to absolute, absolute death. Is there a chance that Ladd comes back? Maybe. Like a... 15, 10, 15% chance. I think he's gone, but with the way the year went, all the injuries, I'm sure it left a sour taste in his mouth, but he's got the NFL ahead of him, man. Now, the only thing I could think of is like maybe the, the back injuries he dealt with this year kind of lead to some questions from NFL people. So maybe he wants to come back and prove he can be healthy for a full year, but 
I don't know if that's going to be enough to have him come back. So I think those guys both probably opt out. Smile Monday, I think he might opt out. It doesn't mean he's going to go pro. He's just, guys, he's banged up, man. He's been hurt for a while. In a game like this, he doesn't need to play. So I think he might end up opting out. I don't know that for sure, but certainly a possibility. Kamari Lasseter might be a guy that opts out. Marius Mims, considering he's been dealing with an injury, could be a guy that opts out. He's going to be a first-round draft pick, so I can certainly see that being someone who opts out. But outside that and the transfer guys, I don't see, I don't know if there'll be anyone else. I think those are probably the names to watch right now, at least off the top of my head. Maybe I'll think about a little bit more and somebody else will come to mind. But right now, I think those are the names to probably watch there. All right, Justin asks, who do you think our biggest early target should be in the transfer portal with all the names who are leaving their schools so far? Well, guys, we have got, we'll talk more about this in the next week or so. But priority number one has got to be difference making immediate impact interior defensive of linemen. As I said earlier, that was the biggest deficiency we had this year, in my opinion. We must address that if we want to get back to the dominant defensive ways that we saw in 2021 and 2022. We've got to address that. I like Jordan Hall. I think he's a really good football player, but that's not enough. Uh, Zion Logue might come back, which and he's a good piece. He just can't be like he can't. He's not a dominant guy. He's not. He's a he's a good rotational piece. He's not like Jalen Carter. He's not that guy. We need more Jalen Carter type guys. You know, Walter Nolan would be a name to at least take a shot at. Man, Shamar Stewart, A and M, both those guys take a shot at LTO. Overton, another guy I take a shot at from here in Georgia. He was kind of pushed to AM from some people in his inner circle initially when he reclassified. He's a Georgia kid. I think we got a good shot at him. Now, he's not an interior guy. He's, a, he's more of a five-tech guy, but he's certainly a guy that's clearly a take. You got to look at guys like that. So those are a couple of names on the interior of the defensive line. I will look at receivers, priority number two. Those are the two spots, interior defensive line, defensive line in general, and receiver. Uh, there's been a lot of smoke around the guy at Vanderbilt, London Humphreys, who is, he was a freshman this year. He's a guy that scored that first touchdown when Tyke Smith blew that coverage. He's a, he's a track guy from Tennessee, guys. I mean, big time speed dude. You saw that. He just, he's, he's a burner, man. He's got good size as well and did some good things for Vanderbilt. And he was the first freshman in Vanderbilt history, I believe, to go for over 100 yards two different times in his freshman season. The guy's a player. So, He's going to be here this weekend on an official visit. So that's certainly a name to watch. The other guy to watch is also a dude at Vanderbilt, Will Shepard. That dude is legit, guys. Like That is a legit big-time SEC receiver. Watch out for him. I mean, I don't know if we're going to get him, but like you got to take a swing, man. Take a swing at that kid. And we play him. Kirby knows how good that guy is. So I think we got to take a shot there. We'll see. I don't know if we'll get him, but I take a swing at him. And another name to watch also in the SEC at South Carolina is Juice Wells, Antoine Wells, who was their leading receiver, essentially a thousand-yard guy back in 2022. This year, he dealt with an injury in the early part of the year. He scored that first touchdown on the screen pass against us in week three. He got hurt in that game and never played the rest of the year. So he missed basically the entire year. But he, when he's healthy, that dude's legit. I mean, he's a thousand-yard guy for South Carolina in 2022. So that's another name. Just, hey, again, take your shot. See if there's any interest there. So those are a couple names at the top of my head that I would be looking at at positions of need. All right, finally here, this is more of a statement. It's not really a question. Um, Josh is just trying to get some conversation started. So he says, okay, this is a what-if question, but it'll bring out some interesting conversations. I do agree with that. He says, replace FSU with Clemson, and there is no way the ACC gets left out of the playoff. I don't know if I agree with that. Maybe. I do think that there is an, uh, go back to unconscious bias. I think there's an unconscious bias in some of these power programs who have been there and done that. I think that's true. But I think if Clemson had a star corporate, let's say it's like Trevor Lawrence Clemson, and he gets knocked out a couple weeks before the playoffs, 
And Clemson's still really good around him, but they have this backup quarterback who's just not it, man. He's not it. And they play two games prior to the playoffs, and they barely get by those two games against inferior opponents. One of them that didn't even make a bowl game. And you're like, man, it's not the same team. I think there's still a really good chance Clemson in that scenario would get left out if you're going for the four best teams. And I, again, I, like I said on Monday with Florida State getting left out, I'm okay with Florida State getting left out. I know it sucks for those kids. And I know like it's it feels icky. It feels gross. They go undefeated. But the committee is charged, as they've said many times over, as recently as last Tuesday, they're charged with picking the four best teams teams. If you do not think that Florida State is one of them, just because you have a zero next to your name does not mean you're one of the four best teams. I don't think Washington is one of the four best teams, but they're in there because there's a zero next to their name. That's my issue. My issue is that if you're going to apply that criteria to Florida State in that four spot between Florida State and Alabama, you say, we just think Alabama is better than Florida State right now. I'm fine with that. If you think Alabama is one of the four best teams and Florida State's not, I'm okay with that. My issue is is the selective application of that logic. Because if you apply that to the number four spot in the playoffs, then you, by extension, must apply that to all four spots, the other three spots in the college football playoff. And they emphatically did not do that. They put Washington in because Washington, in their mind, undefeated Power 5 champion, beat Oregon twice. They were a deserving team. How can we keep them out? But I would venture to say, outside of Seattle, there is not one person in the United States of America who honestly thinks that Washington is better than Georgia. Who is betting on Washington straight up to beat Georgia on a neutral field? Who is putting their money on that? Nobody. Nobody outside of Seattle is doing that. So you're telling me that you applied the same logic to the number two spot when you put Washington in that second spot that you applied with number four spot with Alabama over FSU. Hell no, you didn't. Hell no, you didn't. You use the most deserving logic. Same thing with a three spot. I'm, Texas is better than Washington, in my opinion. And there might be some people out there who say, maybe Texas is better than Georgia. But there's, I would say the majority of, of college fans out there would say, no, Georgia's better than Texas. But they put Texas in because Texas beat Alabama and they won their conference title, even though the conference title game was against freaking Oklahoma State, who lost by essentially 30 points at home to South Alabama and lost 45-3 to to UCF. But hey, they won their conference title, even though we all know all conference title games are not created equally, and they beat Alabama. So they're just more deserving than Georgia. But again, I would say the majority of Americans out there, people who watch college football, say Georgia's better than Texas. So they didn't use the best argument there. That is my issue. That is the crux of my issue. And honestly, right now, I am, here's where I am with college football right now. I'm disgusted. I am absolutely disgusted with the process, the sport itself. I'm just disgusted with it. It's, I, it's not even a playoff to me. Like, this is like Danny Cannell. Like, I don't like Danny Cannell, but. He's right when he says this is an invitational. It is. It's what this is right now. It's a freaking joke. This is, we're talking about the team that was number one, start to finish in the AP poll. I know we didn't open number one in the college playoff, but we got there really quickly and we held there for a couple of weeks. We were number one 24 hours before the SEC title game. And because we lost a three-point game to Alabama, in my opinion, we didn't play well. It was our fault in that regard, but we still would have won the game if it wasn't for an egregiously bad call, a missed call by the referees, which is universally recognized. I mean, Gene Steratore was saying that. And so that was enough to convince you in 24 hours that now Washington is emphatically better than Georgia and Texas is emphatically better than Georgia when you had Texas six spots behind Georgia 24 hours before that? Get the hell out of here. And I'm sorry for the language, guys. I just how I just how I swear I am right now, man. I'm disgusted. I'm disgusted. I don't even I don't I still right now I don't plan on watching the cultural playoff. I don't think I can bring myself to do it because I am disgusted with it. I am at a loss.
We've been sold a bill of goods. It's an entirely fraudulent process. And if I was Florida State and all people are against this idea, I would sue the hell out of the college playoff. I know it's not going to change anything. It's not going to get them in the playoff, but that's not the purpose. The purpose is you want to depose them. You want to get them on the record. You want to subpoena documents. You want to get this stuff out in the open. That's, they, need more, I need, they need more transparency. I want more transparency. I want people to have to answer for these things. I want accountability. You got 13 crusty old men sitting in a room in some freaking hotel making these decisions, and they all have different criteria. They use whatever criteria they want in whatever situation to justify whatever end they want. And quite frankly, I'm sick of it. But yeah, there I am going off on another tangent. I'll get off my soapbox here. Back to the original question, the comment. I, I, I don't think, I really don't think there would be much difference if it was Clemson. Now, maybe I'm wrong there. I do think the power programs do tend to get the benefit of the doubt. But I mean, Florida State's it's not a nobody, man. It's not like Kansas State. I mean, it's, I know they haven't been great of late, but it's traditionally a power program, man. I mean, I know they haven't won the national titles recently because 2013 not that long ago. So I don't I don't think it would be all that different with Clemson. I think that if commit if the committee was going for the four best teams, I I don't have an issue with them leaving Florida State out. I know a lot of people do, and that's a fair a fair argument on the other side of things. I get that. I do get that argument. But if you're going for four best and you only can only pick four, which is the part of the issue. That's a that is the issue. Four freaking teams. Like, no, come on, guys. I know some years you say, oh, there's only two teams that can actually win it. Maybe that's the case. But what happens in a year like this? You're just gonna leave teams that can actually win the national title like Georgia, you're just gonna leave us out and just not give us a shot to play for the title? That's crazy, man. I mean, think about this, guys. So I know it's it's unrealistic to do a 64-team tournament in college football the way that we do in most of the other college sports. I get the reasons why that's unrealistic, and I know you're gonna say, oh, that would kill the regular season. I mean, I guess a little bit. I don't, I mean, yeah, I guess it would take away from regular season some, but think about what you'd get in the postseason. I mean, a freaking term would be awesome. I know you'd say, well, a 16 seed would never be a one seed. Yeah, I know that, but how long was it before it took, it took a 16 seed in the basketball tournament to be a one seed? You know what? We still watched it. It's still one of the most watched things in, in American sports. We love the NCAA tournament, the basketball tournament. I know it, but I know it's a little bit different. But anyway, imagine if in the NCAA basketball tournament, instead of having the 64 teams, and again, I'm not saying that we should have 64 teams. That's why, but this is why I'm okay with it. I'm totally cool with a 12-team playoff. Imagine if in college basketball, instead of having the 64 teams, 68 teams, 68 teams now, I guess, but what if they just went ahead and fast forward? So you know what? Nah, we're not going to pick 64 teams. I know there's a committee that does that, but it's it's far less likely for you to leave out a team that could potentially win a national title when there's 68 teams in the tournament. When there's only four, yeah, you could very easily leave out a team that can win a national title like, oh, I don't know, Georgia. But imagine if the NCAA basketball tournament the committee for that just went straight ahead and said, you know what? Nah, screw the other 64 teams. We're just going to pick the final four and we're just going to play the final four. Well, if you did that last year, you know who wouldn't have won the national title? Oh yeah, UConn, right? The team that actually won it. They were, what, a five seed, if I remember correctly? And I know the basketball is a little different because in basketball, it's more likely that anybody can be anybody on a given, any given day because there's not as many players out there. I understand all that. I get that. But we are picking the final four. You got four crusty old men picking four teams to play a final four playoff. When you have, especially a season like this, I think you know there might be six to eight teams that could realistically win a national title. It's just absurd, man. I know this is the last year and it's not going to matter next year to the 12 team. The 12 team won't be perfect. There's going to be some issues there. It won't be controversy free, but I think it'll be far better than what we've had this year. So yeah, again, I know I went on a little tangent here, but uh, I do have to get out of here now officially. I'm gonna, actually, I don't want to miss the game. I'm going to get there on time. So uh, I'm done, guys. I appreciate you being here. I will be back one more time this week. So make sure to check back on Friday. We'll have you guys a little bit more football talk to head into the weekend. But all right, guys, I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs. <laughs>